Wednesday afternoon, as I'm always here, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I am your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. You've joined me for discussions, and today we will have a discussion with author Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown is a Founder, the founder, and president of the Public Banking Institute, a nonpartisan think tank devoted to the creation of a publicly ran banking system. Ellen obtained her JD from UCLA, where she served as book review editor. So she'll be joining us at the 15-minute mark. Uh, That is the 5.15-minute mark. And this week, we will have a special doubleheader, a special edition tomorrow at the 1 o'clock hour. I will be hosting here on air Stephen Kinzer. Stephen spent the most of his 20 years at the New York Times as a foreign correspondent of Central America, recipient of Columbia University's prestigious Maria Moore's Cabot Prize for his work in Latin America. Today, Stephen serves as a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. He also writes a world affairs column for the Boston Globe. Kinzer brings to program a talk regarding his book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of of American Empire. His past work, the brothers, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, and their secret world war, is quoted by the Wall Street Journal as being fluently written, ingeniously researched, thrillerish work of popular history having received honorary doctorates from Dominican University of River Frost, Illinois, and University of Scranton, all of Stephen's five-plus books have been well-received. 
In fact, the Washington Post places him among the best in popular foreign policy storytelling. An additional work of highlight is his book, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq. The piece recounts the 14 times the United States has overthrown foreign governments and it seeks to explain why these interventions were carried out and what their long-term effects have been. The Effects of U.S. Intervention in Latin America have been overwhelmingly negative. They have had the effect of reinforcing brutal and unjust social systems and crushing people who are fighting for what we would actually call American values. In many cases, if you take Chile, Guatemala, or Honduras, for example, we actually overthrew governments that had principles similar to ours and replaced those democratic, quasi-democratic, or nationalist leaders with people who detest everything the United States stands for. Quote, end quote, Stephen Kinzer. So he'll be on tomorrow at the 1 o'clock hour, Winwood Radio. And in about 10 minutes, Ellen Brown will be joining us. What has Ellen written? Well, Public Banking Institute should give you an idea of what she's done. But the two books that I'm privy to are The Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution. Is there need for a solution to the public banking situation? And what is the public banking situation? Because Bank of America, Wells Fargo, those are public banks, aren't they? It goes a little bit deeper than that. And Ellen will discuss what she speaks of. Because as we know it, U.S. debt is at about 20, 25, somewhere in there, somewhere between there. I know that's a large gap, but let's just settle on 20. Let's just say 20. We'll round down, right? Because uh, that's, what, uh, that's what we're hoping for here. We'll round down $20 trillion debt is what the United States government is. So why isn't it fixing that problem? What would it take to fix that problem? And what is the web of debt that Ellen speaks of? So a special doubleheader for you this week. The final day of February the 28th. Final day of February. And it will open up the the month with Stephen Kinzer tomorrow. Special Thursday edition at 1 o'clock. Next week where I'm going to bring on a local group. They call themselves SMASH, Struggle for Miami's Affordable and Sustainable Housing. It's a group dedicated to holding slumlords accountable for keeping their properties compliant with city code and conduct. 
Group lead Adrian Madrid will join program with his chairperson, Porgy Town. They're aimed at lighting the way for a community that's in darkness. We could all use a little light. Thank you, Thomas Edison. So, last week, we went down the trail that Charlotte Azerbite uh, paved for us. And, well, she didn't really pay for it. We can thank a fraternity out of Yale uh, that paved things. And we can even actually thank Reagan, I think. She was opposed to a project BEST, B-E-S-T, Better Education Skills Through Technology. That's a project brought about by a Canadian, Dr. John L. Goodlad, the University of Washington. He's quoted as saying, parents do not own their children. They have no natural right to control their child's education. Well, that and a few other things Charlotte had uh, an issue with. She was opposed to that type of a viewpoint. So our discussion last week went down a, a road that is very unexpected. An unexpecting road. And that's where the comment about a Yale fraternity slips in there. Now, I urge you to listen to that episode. I've got all my past episodes archived at SoundCloud, MixCloud, YouTube. So please do listen to those past episodes and this past episode in particular with Charlotte. She's a former senior policy advisor for the Department of Education under the Ronald Reagan administration. I also urge you to look at Discussions I've had with past guests, that's Mark Shaw, author Ryan Walters, and Senator of Mississippi Chris McDaniel, and also Christopher Bolin. Christopher Bolin wrote a book regards to his research on 9-11. He found some extremely gray areas that he wanted clarification on and his book Surviving 9-11 reveals much of if not all of that investigation The other issue I urge you to please take heed with is the vaccine debate. 
regardless of side that you take, whether you're for, for vaccines or you're against vaccines, I can't imagine anyone being completely against vaccines. Um, pharmaceuticals are necessary. They're important. Cures are more important. Uh, that depends on how you look, uh, what your view is. But what I ask you to look in at, look into, what I look into, are the ingredients, specifically the life-enhancing ingredients, so the preser- preservatives that are put in vaccines. Also look at the amount, the number of vaccines as that number continues to increase. And then I also want you to look at informed consent. Okay, informed consent, Barbara Lowe Fisher, recent guest on show, is fighting for your child's right and administered through you as parent to be able to choose, have a choice when it comes to vaccines, to be able to say no to vaccines. So that's another issue of extreme importance. So as we prepare to bring Ellen on, let me briefly run this quote by you. And this is by former California Supreme Court Justice of 1980, Stanford graduate Rose Bird. Now, while Ellen was at UCLA, she did some work. And we're going into that with her, but briefly, Rose Bird's comments about Ellen's work were this, that they were excellent, they were an exhaustive review of the case and statutory law. So Ellen's an extremely fine researcher, and we'll hear what she has to say about private banking versus public banking, or should we say the state of banking in this country. I'll cut to a break, and I'll be right back. Thanks for joining Winwood Radio. I'm your host for discussions, Ian Trache. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on YouTube. And trips in my palms I spoon my thoughts You're eating my past You said don't get too close Cause I am a killer Aim for your heart So you won't get up Projections, dreams Crystallized scenes We brush it off Cause it ain't what it seems Blah, blah, blah Again, I had the right laugh, there's no need to pretend 
Okay, and I am back. Thanks for tuning in to weekly uh, radio show discussions on Winwood Radio. I'm your host, Ian Trottier. Today we have an incredible guest on program, Ellen Brown, uh, former practicing lawyer, if not you're still practicing, and certainly author of uh, two very important books, one of them being The Web of Debt. You're the founder and president of the Public Banking Institute. Ellen, are you with us? I am. Thanks for Great. joining us. Uh, How, thank, uh, go thanks ahead. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, you're, in, you're in the Los Angeles area, right? Right. How's the weather today? Uh, sunny, but not really warm. We're having a cold spell, a sunny cold spell. I see. Okay. Well, Florida, at least South Florida and Miami here, it's uh, it's nice and warm. Um, let's get right into uh, what, uh, uh, what uh, first off, maybe uh, tell listeners a little bit about yourself, may, uh, some sort of an intro, if you would. Okay, well, I've written 12 books. I'm almost done with my 13th. Um, the, my, the first 10 were on health and the politics of health and alternative health care, and I realized at some point that if if you really wanted to fix that problem, you, you had to fix the money problem because where the pharmaceutical, medical pharmaceutical cartel got its power was actually through banking, that they were all one, all one conglomerate. Um, so I had, well, I was an English major at Berkeley before I... Um, I realized I couldn't make any money writing books, <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I went to law school and worked as a lawyer for ten years. But, but when I uh, then we went in the foreign service, uh, or my ex-husband burned out on Beverly Hills Law, and so we went abroad, and that gave me a chance to write. So I wrote on various things. But I had early on researched the Federal Reserve and where our money comes from, and found all that quite interesting and um, shocking. Something that most people weren't aware of. So when I learned that The Wizard of Oz was actually written as a monetary allegory in the 1890s, I had a hook to write this book, and so that's I spent the next six years writing Web of Debt, and then uh, that that happened right before. You probably don't want to hear this. No, I do. 
and and my listeners do. You please continue. This is good stuff. Okay, so so um, it came out in 2007, and then we had the 2008 collapse. And I had, I had actually predicted that, not because I was any had any great insights, but it was just uh, I was quoting different people who were predicting that the whole system was shaking and was likely to collapse. And so I started writing articles about it, and I knew that uh, North Dakota was the only state that had its own state-owned bank, so I was watching it. And at first there were four states that escaped the credit crisis that stayed in the the black while the others were going into the red, and then there were three, and then there were two, and then there was one, and it was North Dakota. So I suspected the bank may have had something to do with it, so I did a lot of research and started writing articles about that. Um, In fact that it has a very unique system where it actually has more local banks per capita than any other state. So the Bank of North Dakota, its state-owned bank, actually acts as a banker's bank, and it uh, so the, the local banks are like the front office that deal with the customers. So the Bank of North Dakota, by recycling the state's money, Back into the local economy and back mm-hmm. into the public bank or the local banking system, it sort of acts like a cooperative where all the money is kept together and the profits are kept together for the benefit of the public rather than going off into to Wall Street or uh, out of state or even out of the country. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's why the Bank of North Dakota was set up a hundred years ago. The farmers were losing their farms to the big out-of-state banks, and they decided they wanted to keep their money local, keep it home in North Dakota, and they formed a populist movement, rather like the populist movement of the 1890s that I (laughs) I wrote Web of Debt about, Mm -hmm. um, and managed to get this bank set up, and it's been going strong ever since. It's very profitable, and it uh, serves the state. That's excellent. Yeah. So then... uh, that generated a lot of interest, and um, after a couple of years, well, so then we formed a Google group and went round and round on all these issues, and after a couple of years, we felt like we were the experts, so it was time to sure. do and get out and actually do something. So we formed the Public Banking Institute, and we've been just trying to educate people on the fact that there is another model for starters. I mean, other countries have... Um, large public banking sectors, but we don't. With the, uh, the U.S. is almost unique in having the Bank of North Dakota is the only state-owned depos- depository bank. So mm-hmm. we did that, and now we have quite a bit of interest, and in a number of states are talking about or looking into forming their own banks, and cities and counties are as well. It sounds like you've you've made quite uh, quite the impression, um, and. <laughs> So I had no idea North Dakota. Um, how I I, I look at uh, you know, from what I've kind of understood about uh, the controlling clause of the um, of the of the Federal Reserve. I wonder how North Dakota was able to kind of sustain that system over the course of uh, you know, you know, a century or, or, or longer. And, um, and and certainly was it just not the you know because of the the the, the population uh, uh, in North Dakota it just wasn't generating enough uh, uh, money they weren't that big of a player so the, the feds didn't really care about them I, does does that kind of argument make any sense? 
Well, they are. They do. They deal with other banks, including the Federal Reserve. They have a. They are not a Federal Reserve member, but they do have an account with the Fed. In fact, you have to have a master account with the Fed if you want to uh, clear checks with other banks. So, if you want to be part of the banking system, so they do do that. And I think the reason they've nobody really came after them or you know was yeah. was concerned about this alternative model was that like you say it's a small state up there in the north they kept a low profile they didn't talk about it and uh, they just did it and nobody really paid much attention uh-huh. but it's it's serving the people of north dakota well and it's a system that's working well what are some of the elements that you like of it that would let's say your home state or you know the state there in california um compare and contrast what what are some of the benefits for uh that system up there in north dakota let's say if if it, if it were to apply to uh california what would mm-hmm. be some of the advantages yeah well What's interesting and what I wrote Web of Debt about and what most people don't realize is that banks actually create our money. Like virtually all of our money supply is created by banks when they make loans. Um, the, the way that, so, so if you want to get new money into your economy, the way to do it is to own a bank uh, because you're probably not going to be able to get the private banks to do it. Or if they do do it, they... Your local banks are good, like the Bank of North Dakota works with the local banks, but your big out-of-state banks are not really interested in stimulating your local economy. And so they're more likely to be extracting money from your economy than actually helping your economy grow. Um, The way banks create money, uh, well, well, if you want to trace that whole evolution, I think that's pretty interesting how it happened in the... the, um, 17th century, goldsmiths would take in people's gold for safekeeping because it was, you know, heavy to carry around and not safe. And they would give them these little paper receipts, these gold receipts, which were more convenient to trade uh-huh. than than the actual gold. And so the paper receipts became a major part of the money supply. And then the goldsmiths quickly, some people would want to borrow the gold, and they too liked the paper receipts. So the goldsmiths quickly figured out that they could lend many more paper receipts than they had gold because most people didn't come for the gold. And that was the beginning of what we call fractional reserve lending. Then in the um, 19th century in the U.S., states or local uh, state-chartered banks were issuing their own bank notes that had they had their own the bank's name on it and it was basically a promissory note from the bank for gold it was the same sort of thing but these were now bank notes instead of goldsmith's notes and so they were effectively privately issuing the money supply issuing these paper notes and in the 1860s the in with the National Bank Act there was an effort to get uh the state chartered banks to join the na- the national banking system and so they heavily taxed those paper notes that the that the banks were issuing themselves so instead of issuing notes what they started doing was if somebody came to them for a loan instead of like say it was a you know time since <laughs> we've had a lot of inflation since the, yeah. let's say they came for a 100 dollar loan um 
instead of issuing a $100 bank note with the, the bank's name on it like they used to do, what they would do is just write that $100 into a checking account for the borrower, and then the borrower himself would write checks on that account. So it was really the borrower who was writing these promissory notes, and so there was no tax. Um, and But the, this sum, this $100 that they wrote into the account was money they didn't actually have. Supposedly it was backed by gold, but it, but they were mm-hmm. doing, again, many more loans than they had gold, and that was how money was created. And so we still have that system today where if a bank makes a loan, it just writes the sum into into the borrower's account, and then the borrower can spend it however he will. And uh, so, so in order to generate more money for your local economy, if you have a bank, let's say you have, well, right now we, California has an infrastructure bank that is a revolving fund. So let's say you have a billion dollars that you use to, to, that you have to lend. So the bank can lend out a billion dollars, say at 4%, wait for it to come back, and then lend it out again. And so you, so you get 4% out of that. But if you use that billion dollars to capitalize the bank, you can actually lend $10 billion. You need, the, you need some deposits to back all that up, but you've got the deposits. If you're a state, you've got a lot of money sitting in Wall Street that are your own state-owned deposits. So if you pull those out of those big out-of-state banks, the local banks are not big enough to handle California's deposits, so you pull that money out of the Wall Street banks, put it into your own bank, and you can then leverage your billion dollars in capital into up to $10 billion in loans. You probably wouldn't do that much for, let's say, $7 billion in loans times 4%. So you've just made 28% instead of 4%. So it's very lucrative for the state as well as now you can direct that credit where your state really needs it instead of letting Wall Street decide mm-hmm. where they want to put it, which which overseas investment they want to put the money into, which isn't going to help your state and may actually drain your state of resources. Uh, in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota in 2014, an article in the Wall Street Journal said that it was more profitable than Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. Chase, wow. and yet it was making lower interest loans to the into the local community than than the big the big banks. So how could they do that? They're they're saving money for the people for the borrowers. And at the same time, they're turning a very nice profit. But how they do it is they're basically eliminating the middlemen, and the interest goes right back to the state. So you could fund your own infrastructure, for example. Fifty percent of the cost of infrastructure is financing. So if you own the bank, you get your infrastructure for half price. Uh-huh. So it's a very good deal. And you're probably stimulating more... Uh more movement. Um, I don't. Would that be accurate? Yeah, there's, there's probably yeah, more borrowing, that, more lending going on. Right. I think I saw somebody calculated out that you get one and a half times back just for, you know just from the just from the the stimulation of the local economy. You besides what you've made on the actual loans, you you turn another fifty percent profit just from. I mean, you the local government 
just from generating more business in the community, which then pays more taxes. Now, okay, so what what is it? So you started out um, looking into alternative health care, and, and I want you to go into that because that's extremely important. But what you're, you're you know, very... Uh, uh, Logically, you said, wait a second, you know, this is all stimulated by banking. And so what was it that caught your alarm in regards to the Federal Reserve? Well, I had already read in the, back in the 1970s when I was trying to be a writer before I went to law school, I had already researched the Federal Reserve. I think I read Eustace Mullins, which is, you know, heavily conspiratorial stuff, but it's just so interesting. I mean, it was just stuff that I'd never heard of before, and I thought, well, that's that's shocking, the fact that that we have this central bank that controls its things and that... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it, the more I researched, the, the more interesting it got. <laughs> but then, of course, I was busy. busy uh, I have two kids, so I was busy raising kids and working as a lawyer, and all that got you know pushed sure. in the background yeah. but and then I started writing and uh, th- I represented a cancer therapist in an alternative cancer therapist in Tijuana who was kidnapped by the FBI FBI basically oh taken goodness. from Tijuana back to Louisiana tried for fraud the alleged fraud of saying he had a, a high rate of success with cancer but he actually did have a high rate of success with cancer he did I mean I knew the person who told me that he needed a lawyer, and um, you know, at first they needed somebody to write an article, and so I wrote an article, and he liked the article, and he didn't he didn't trust his current lawyer, so he wanted a second team. <laughs> so I agreed to help with this with this lawsuit. So over the next seven years, I spent a lot of time, you know, interviewing him. He he was in jail there for a while, and um, and he just had such I mean, he was totally coming from the, a different place than I was. I was a California Democrat, and he was a hardcore Louisiana Republican, <laughs> but very suspicious of government and just knew a lot about things that I, you know, were just new to me. And it was just, it was just so interesting. I mean, as a writer, you really go for the interesting stuff. Sure. I thought, well, that's interesting and shocking and worth writing about. So what was it would just keep on that course there what was the uh what was the outcome with this with this fellow Oh well he in the end he passed away from he had a massive stroke but it wasn't yeah. cancer he had gotten cancer when he was but he did spend 4 years in jail and um, uh-huh. you know that was pretty traumatic and he had all these people at his trial who were saying they were going to die if he you know if uh-huh. he stayed in jail and I don't know. The jury just, I guess they thought those people were lying, but I knew those people and they weren't lying, and a lot of them did die. So, so did Eustace Mullins take you down a road uh, into uh, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and some of the early kind of preliminary groundwork for the uh, for for the system that would kind of be chipped away at, uh, from what I'm understanding, and leading up into the 1913 Federal Reserve Act with Woodrow Wilson, uh, was there anything along that road that 
Mullins kind of helped you gain an interest in? Well, in truth, I I read that in the 70s, so I can't even remember what was in. I read two of his books, I think. Um, But it just um, tipped me off to that that was an interesting place to look. So then I did a lot of research from all sorts of writers. And I, you know, I was a bit naive. I, we were, we went to Africa for three years, and okay. then we were in Guatemala for five years, and two years in Honduras. And so I was writing from from afar. Well, that, and then I came back to state. I shouldn't say I was that naive. But anyway, after I wrote a lot of things, I mean, I I realized I was really walking on the edge without even realizing it. You know, I was just reporting what I had read, and yeah, I got got into not not serious trouble, but what I mean, I've gotten a lot more circumspect about checking okay. my sources. I see. Yeah. Uh, you ran for uh, treasurer of the state of California, and uh, at about the same time, you had a uh, an opinion piece appear in the New York Times. Uh, the title of that opinion piece is "Public Banks Are Key to Capitalism." What what is the kind of overall, if you can describe that, because I think that's I, you know, I, I, I'm thinking as as I'm hearing you talk about the banking system in North Carolina, and uh, you know the, the lower interest rates, and then being reinvested into the infrastructure. Um, I'm thinking, wait a second, that's kind of you know that's like uh, that's like that's like that's a great scenario for anyone. I think you know your book, The Web of Debt, and it just seems like there's so much. Great debt that most of average Americans are just wallowing in debt. They're 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 working their their nine to five and uh, painstakingly trying to get their 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 families fed and and their bills paid. And it's like you know the majority, and then they're getting these exorbitant uh, taxes from from their states. And it just seems like that seems like it's not capitalism it's almost like it's it's almost anti-capitalism uh, what are your thoughts well uh jamie galbraith wrote a book or wrote in a book i remember him writing that 50 percent of every i mean every economy is half capitalist half or half public half private in other words obviously you need the public sector right i mean nobody disputes that we need roads and we need yeah I sure. mean, a lot of people dispute that we need the <laughs> military, but yeah. but we've got the military. Actually, our fifty percent actually goes into the military, which is huge. <laughs> uh, you know, most people don't approve of that, but there doesn't uh-huh. seem to be much that we can do about it. We can't seem to. We don't really have control over our, our own government. But anyway, you need public resources. All those things that that here's the way I look at it. Yeah. All those things that flow that we share. That that community, you know, that in, make people interact. So you've got um, power and electricity right. and water and highways, and these are all things that connect people. Telephone well, money lines. also is a flow. Uh-huh. Once you realize that money is not gold, it's not bits of things. Today, our money—it's not dug out of the ground. Today, our money is pluses and minuses. It's zeros and ones. It's it's debits and credits. It, it, the money is created as a debit by a bank, and you pay that off, and it goes back to zero. So it goes, 
you know, you've got like a hundred bucks in your account, but you've also got a minus hundred on in in the books, and you've got to pay that back. And so that's where money comes from. It's created on the books. So it's it's all a flow. It's a flow of um, it's information. It's who owes what to whom. It's an exchange. And if you give the if you put that in private hands, if you allow people to actually create the money that other people have to borrow in order to you can't get money any other way somebody has to borrow it i mean you may get it from your employer but your employer had to borrow it somebody borrowed it into existence somewhere along the chain and since all those loans are at interest more money is always owed back than was borrowed in the first place now you could theoretically so so you you can see that this debt has to just grow and grow just to keep paying, right? You know, just to stay afloat. You could, in theory, pay off the loan with less money than you started with because if if the lender gives the money back every every month, in other words, let's say you only pay by the month, so let's say you pay $1,000 every month, and then the lender, the bank, hires you to, um, Ed Griffin used this example, where the bank hires you to scrub their floors and they pay you $1,000 a month. (laughs) So you get the money back and then you can pay it again and again. But but what are you? You're a debt slave to this bank, for starters, and they don't hire their borrowers to scrub their floors. That money does not go back into the real economy. It goes, most of it goes off into the speculative economy. So we've actually got these two economies going, and it's the productive, the the laboring economy that's supporting both of them. So this system just can't work. I mean, it, it is working in the sense that we're getting exploited and it's yeah. working for some people and not for others. But there must be a better way to do it. And the better way, it seems to me, is if you do return that money to the center so that it's available to, you know, to keep the whole thing circulating. And a public banking system does that. The the interest goes back to the government, which is the public, so or owned by the public. So then, assuming you have an honest government, which is another issue, but anyway, so <laughs> then the government spends that into the economy for infrastructure or for, you know, hiring people or for education, all those things that serve people. So then they have access to those funds, and then they can pay off their loans, and the thing goes back to zero and balances, and we could have a sustainable system. And there are countries that have or have had (laughs) such a system, and it's worked quite well. What's one country that stands out in your mind? Well, I would say, I mean, actually, the... The one that works the best is actually China, and of course that is not a interesting. <laughs> no, even if they claim to be capitalist, we all know they're not exactly capitalist. Right. Um, but Germany is is an excellent example because fifty percent of their of their commercial banks are uh, nonprofits. They're not actually owned by the government, but they're not owned by anyone, so they're not private. They're not private banks. And these are the Sparkasm banks. They've been around for more than 100 years, I think 200 years. And um, they they service the local business, and they uh, are a major factor in the success of the German economy. I mean, we, we, if you consider that the German economy was like 
totally wiped out after World War right, II. Right. And somehow they got to be number one again in Europe. How did they do that? It's the, the Sparkesen group anyway claims that it's they did it. You know that they were they were funding their local businesses. Now. Um who are some of the uh, people that you have interested right now in, uh, in 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 your in your public banking platform? You, you, there's uh, people from states or states, entire states. Uh, what are some of the interested parties that are that are that you're working with now? Well, I'm in California, so of course our state treasurer is interested. John Chung oh, has a um, he's working up a feasibility study for it. His particular interest is. Uh, a place to park the cannabis money because we've now legalized marijuana uh-huh. in this state for for recreational purposes. So it's a, anticipated to be a seven billion dollar business with one billion going to taxes. Well, the government has an obvious interest in keeping an eye on that tax money. Sure. <laughs> and they're worried about crime. The police are worried about people stash all this paper dollar bills in their basements, uh-huh. and even just the um, the inconvenience of they come in with these, <laughs> I heard somebody say, they come in with these bags of dollar bills to pay their taxes. It smells of marijuana. Somebody's got to count all that stuff. I guess they have counting machines. But anyway, it's just very inconvenient. It would be much better if they were allowed to use a banking system and it would all be numbers. Plus, the reason it's illegal, it's called money laundering. Well, the biggest money launderers, are the state of California and the U.S. government. The U.S. government takes that money in taxes. Why are they allowed to turn dirty money into clean money, but a bank is not allowed to? Anyway, there's, you know, so there's, a, there's lawsuits going on over that, or there's bills and so forth. So he's interested from that angle. Um, in L.A., where I live, there's a, there was a city a resolution by the city that they uh, will... Form. Well, first of all, there was a revolution, uh, resolution to move their money out of Wells Fargo because of corruption. Well, if you pull it out of Wells Fargo, then where do you put it? And the city of L.A. is bigger than, many times bigger than North Dakota. I mean, they have <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot of deposits. So they can't just put it in your local credit union. Um, so the obvious partner to that push was to form a publicly owned bank and put it, you know, put it in their own bank. So they're working on that. And in in New Jersey, we we have great hopes for New Jersey. The governor, the newly elected governor Phil Murphy, uh, was a a banker at Goldman Sachs. So it, it was our people who suggested this idea. Said, "Have you heard of public banking?" And as soon as he thought about it, you know, having been a banker, knowing how banking works. He could easily see that he could make the state could turn a profit on it. You know that this could be a good arrangement for the state. So they he's been in office like just a month, and they've already got a bill on for a state-owned bank. So they're moving on that. That's we've had a number of bills over the years, and they like in California in 2011, I think there was a a bill that for a feasibility study for a state-owned bank passed both houses of the legislature, and then Governor Jerry Brown wouldn't sign it. He uh-huh. said his reasoning was, we have, we don't need another Blue Ribbon Committee. We've already got a banking committee. We can do this in-house. But they didn't do it. You know, and that apparently 
that's where bills go to die. <laughs> uh-huh. And so it's sort of what you need is the political will, in other words. But Phil Murphy has the political will, so that's great. And John Chung in California has the political will. He wants to figure out what to do with that cannabis money. And a number of states have, well, Washington State has a feasibility study going. Um, a number of cities here in California, I think um, Oakland, let's see, can't remember who else, oh, San Francisco, um, so the city of Seattle, the city of Philadelphia, well, anyway, so there are a number of, Michigan has a bill, an, a newly filed bill on, so there are a number of these bills going, and this is kind of our second round of bills, so we've gotten older and wiser and know better how to approach it. So hopefully uh, hopefully we'll be successful one of these days. That's great. That's wonderful. And who are, uh, who are some of the, of course, you're helping um, New Jersey and the Los, Los Angeles. You're, you're, you're helping them kind of create the structure for this uh, public banking format? Well, I'm just a writer, of course, and the Public Banking Institute is a nonprofit, so we're not allowed to lobby or really get all that politically involved, but we, what we do is just make information available, and we write and we do the ordinary blogs and social media and interviews and whatever, <laughs> whatever okay. comes up. Now, how about the uh, the local uh, or the 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 average? Uh, if somebody somebody listening, a, a listener that's that's intrigued in this sort of thing, um, what's the advice that you you could give the the average everyday American? Well, we, there are if you want to work on your own state or your own city, um, there are people all over the country working on this now, but. If you wanted to write or email to publicbankinginstitute.org or to me, um, or let's see, I, I think you could do info at publicbankinginstitute.org and just inquire, and we can tell you who you could contact to get, uh, you know, to, to join a group that's that's actively pursuing a bank <laughs> wherever you are sure wonderful um a, 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 a few more a, a final final kind of um comment if you have any in regards to um the cryptocurrency uh which is basically a decentralized an attempt to decentralize um uh the, the money and and it's uh, i guess in some ways it it, it kind of threads in and, and weaves into to that of of public banking but uh what what are your thoughts on on that angle of a, a cryptocurrency push? Well, it's a it's a noble idea. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the the current well, Bitcoin, for example, could not replace the U.S. dollar. And the reason is, first of all, it's very expensive to produce. Right. It's very environmentally unfriendly. Yeah. And <laughs> a lot of energy. It, electricity. It, sorry. A lot of electricity. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the, the way it's set up, it's very slow. So even right now, it can take several hours. So you wouldn't want to stand in line for several hours to get your cup of coffee. But if you, if you scale it up so that everybody across the country is using it, the problem is that every single transaction has to register in every 
you know, you know, each of those transactions is captured forever, uh-huh. and so the it gets slower and slower the more people use it. So if you scaled that up, um, you'd be, you could be standing in line for days. I mean, it's just it's not practical for for cheap, uh, you know, for li- for little trades, the things yeah. that make up most of our daily consumer trades. But it's a, it's quite good for if you have big money that's going across international lines or something right, or right. black market type stuff or you're you're in China and you're trying to get your money out you know you're trying to avoid regulations it's it's definitely got uh-huh. its uses and meanwhile all these other cryptocurrencies are coming out that purport to uh, overcome a lot of those challenges I mean they may one day come up with one that actually works. But I, personally, I would prefer to clean up the government and have a centralized <laughs> currency because what happens with, I mean, even if you have a totally secure currency, let's say you trade with somebody in China, yeah. and they, what if they don't send you the goods that they were right. supposed to send you? Who are you going to sue? Where You can't go to Amazon or you can't go to... You know, you don't have yeah. any big central place that's going to get, or the bank. You can't go to your credit card and say, this is a fraudulent charge, reverse the charges. Your, it, your money's gone. It's just disappeared into the ether because it's that uh, anonymous. Right. Right. So, it, so there's much to be said for government. Government also protects us. That's why we, supposedly, that's why we pay our taxes. We want all those all those benefits that we get from that you know that big protective thing big around us that we all share. <laughs> um, do you have any comments in regards to alternative health or healthcare? Well, uh, the problem with our current system is that it's half public and half private. I mean, we're the government is. W- basically willing to pay whatever <laughs> whatever the market will bear, bear and the market just drives those prices up and up and up but so so a lot of people turn to alternatives because they're cheaper for one thing but I, I think with the internet I mean I just totally believe that our bodies are not designed to take in these toxic right. things that in order to patent something you have to alter it chemical structure so it can't be natural you can't patent a natural thing well clearly your body wants the natural things that's what it thrives on so you're much better off getting into alternative natural type therapies and now with the internet we can really largely be our own doctors of course you can't do your own surgeries or but you can definitely at least be a, give yourself a second opinion <laughs> you know do some research and Find out if there isn't some alternative way to to do things because people are. It's amazing what people have put on the internet. You know, they just yeah. give their own experiences of. Well, I tried baking soda for this or whatever. You know, right. just, they, they'll just tell you it. It's just like you can fix your car. You can do almost anything on the internet these days, or from yeah. reading about it on the YouTube. internet. YouTube. <laughs> um, Ellen, do you have um, some? Parting uh, thoughts for listeners, and uh, of course, I would like you to uh, to again repeat your website uh, or any other social uh, media outlets uh, that you'd like them to to, to hear. Um, so, some parting parting uh, remarks or comments, um, and then uh, website. 
Well, I know everybody's like frightened and worried about what's happening to the economy and but my feeling I'm I feel actually very optimistic. I think we're I think we're at a time of great change. This, we're living in rel- revolutionary times and there is so much potential out there for coming out with new systems. And you've got to get rid of the old systems before you can build a new. I mean, I don't want to see the whole thing come crashing down, but my goal would be to fix it before it comes crashing down. You know, realize what the problem is, and let's see if we can't just, you know, tweak this system around and make it actually work. Um, so my website, or our website for Public Banking Institute is publicbankinginstitute.org, and my own website is ellenbrown.com, and I guess that's, and my two books that are particularly on this subject are Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution, and my book that I'm almost done with is called The Coming Revolution in Banking, uh, Democratizing Money in the Digital Age. Beautiful. I love it. Wonderful. Thank you, Ellen. Uh, such a such an honor and uh, wonderful to have you on the program, and um, I'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Ellen. Oh, great. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Ian. Ladies and gentlemen, author and I guess I can say legal analyst, former lawyer, practicing attorney, Ellen Brown. Uh, You heard her mention she's authored over 12 books. Sounds like she's working on what would be the 13th, almost done with the 13th. Uh, But the most notable is the web of debt, the shocking truth about our money system and how we can break free. Folks, I'll be back right back after a short break. You're turning into discussions. I'm your host, Ian Trottier. This is Winwood Radio.
and welcome back. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Check me out on Twitter at I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. That's Ian Trottier. Check me out on Instagram. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook. I don't use Facebook that much, but I'm certainly on SoundCloud and MixCloud and YouTube. You've been tuning into Winwood Radio. Well, you're tuning in. You're tuned in to Winwood Radio. And you've just listened to the amazing Ellen Brown talk about public banking institution. I mean, come on, seriously? North Dakota? Like, right? Okay, guys. Ellen's on to something incredibly good. Sounds like the folks in North Dakota have had something incredibly good for well over 100 years. Uh, I have not been through North Dakota. I've been through South Dakota. Uh, close to, well, I've been to Mount Rushmore. Unless I've got those two states mixed around, I believe that is South Dakota. Uh, South Dakota on over into Minnesota. I didn't make it up to North Dakota, however. But it sounds like they have, again, to repeat myself, they have had something good for a while. And if you just do a quick uh, Google query, you'll find that we, as a populace, a people, gathered under the flag of the United States of America, we're in debt, and we're in a lot of it. We're in a web of debt that has many layers and is filthy. It's disgusting. And Ellen sounds like she's got an incredible way to fix that. You don't grab the attention of New Jersey or even one of the largest cities and certainly most wealthy cities in the world, that is Los Angeles, if you don't have a system that works. In fact, as you heard her say, she has the current California State Treasurer interested in her format. Tomorrow, special edition. Right here, 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Stephen Kinzer, former New York Times columnist, correspondent of Central America. He'll be on talking about the true flag. That'll be some good stuff. I'm going to repeat the name of one of his previous books, just because, hey, look, this is one of our liberties. Freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of press, that means, dude, you find something of interest, go out and search it. Search it out. Weed it out. Seek and, if need be, destroy. Ellen and those who agree with her are doing just that, hopefully, for the current banking system. Destroy it. Well, alter it. Change it. Make it a soft destruction. The Brothers is the title of the book. John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, and their secret world war. That's a very stark title. If you're not familiar with the Dulles Brothers, you're not sure who they are, you want to check out that book. 
for your Wednesday edition of Discussions with Ian Trottier on Winwood Radio. It has been my pleasure. And I'll be back for a special edition tomorrow at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host, Ian Trottier, iantrottier.com. And until then, thank you for listening, and be awesome.